Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Megan Gibson, executive editor of Foreign in London. It's Monday, the 21st of March. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, an international news podcast. Every Wednesday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm joined by the award-winning Ukrainian novelist and writer, Andrei Kirkov. Born in St. Petersburg in 1961, Kirchhoff has since come to prominence as both the best-selling writer of works such as the 1996 novel Death and the Penguin, and as a Ukrainian commentator and outspoken critic of Vladimir Putin. He joins us today from Ukraine, where he and his family have witnessed the devastation of Russia's war on the country. Andrei Kirchhoff, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you are welcome. So I wanted to begin speaking about a piece you wrote for the New Statesman in mid-February before the war had began. And you wrote a beautiful dispatch about the mood on the ground in Kiev. Now, this is at a time when the current situation, the war, just seemed absolutely impossible. And indeed, many Ukrainians did not think that there would be an invasion. I wonder if you could talk about what those first days of the war were like for you and where you were. Well, we were in Kiev, and of course, when we were woken up at 5 o'clock in the morning on 24th of February by explosions outside, it was shock and numbness. I couldn't think about anything. I understood that this is the war, but I couldn't believe it. So I was walking for one hour from uh, one side of windows in our flat to the other side of windows because we have many windows. We have flats, which is facing both sides of the building. And it was empty and quiet. There were no people on the street in the beginning, no cars, although at that time usually there are some cars already, so there is some traffic. And then I suddenly uh, noticed two ladies uh, walking their small dog in the small posit uh, our windows at our house. And then two more explosions were at six o'clock in the morning. And uh, a bit later, we went for a walk with my wife and we were looking because we didn't check the nearest bomb shelters. I saw the arrows showing the directions, but since we didn't believe this was, would happen, that, and these arrows were there already for years, starting from the annexation of Crimea time and the war in Donbass. 
I wanted to check one bomb shelter in the under the house where my friend had an office, and we went there, and it was empty and dirty, lots of rubble and dust. The only positive thing was that there was a toilet there. And then we went to a Redison hotel next to our house just uh, to see what is happening there, and, uh, and there were lots of journalists there in the lobby. And we sat there for 20 minutes, and then decided to walk further. And then we met a friend and had tea with him in his office nearby. And he was almost trembling. I mean, he was uh, very scared uh, and angry. Uh, and actually, he left later for abroad, and I was on phone with him. He was in Zurich. And in fact, uh, the night before, we had a party, and I cooked borscht for my friends. And among them, there was a Brazilian ambassador. So he said that we can come to him on the next day, but he didn't go, of course. Uh, but uh, one of our friends stayed with us, a British uh, writer, journalist, Lily Hyde, who actually lived in Kiev until recently. And then we decided to spend next night in her flat nearby because there was a park, an underground park, in which the security guards promised to open in case of the bombardment. And it was just next door to her place. And we are on the top floor, so we, her flat was in the middle floor. So we stayed uh, overnight with her. And then next morning after the sirens, we decided to go back with my wife and to drive to our village house. So we did. On the way, we got into the traffic jam on the exit of Kiev. And there were thousands and thousands of cars leaving and joining the not very big highway from all the streets on the uh, right side. And we wanted to pick up also our friend with her son. Uh, and in the end, actually, they, they had to run, not run, because the traffic was standing. When we moved to the exit, she was there and she just came to our car, passing lorries and buses. And then her son came with a suitcase and we didn't have space for the suitcase, so they had to take it on the lap. And they took us four and a half hours to cover 60 miles to our village house. When we arrived there, we showed our friend the room for them. But then we decided to go to Lviv because our children were in Lviv for a long weekend. And our friend didn't want to stay alone in the village. So she said that she will go with her son also with our to, to Lviv. And it was another 22 hours journey plus two hours sleep on the road. And there we parted already, sort of we got reunited with our children. Our daughter actually lives in London. So she came purposely to spend the weekend in Lviv with the brothers and with friends. So we, we took them and the friends, and after some rest, we left for the Carpathian region. The journey altogether took three days, but we managed to send her back to London. Our friends helped us to, to find a place on a bus going to, to Slovakia, and then actually she spent, I think, I don't know how many, 15 hours or more on this bus in the queue of buses across the border, but in the end, she flew back. And what about your other children? Are they still in Ukraine? Yeah, the boys are still in Ukraine. They are helping refugees. They were doing different things. They were helping uh, to make camouflage nets in the beginning, but but then they decided to, to just to work on the in the refugee centers here, helping people that either want to stay in the Western Ukraine or want to cross the border. And was there, has there ever been a moment when you yourself and your, your wife have considered leaving? No, no. I suggested my wife and children to leave because they are British citizens, but they decided to stay. And, and actually, my wife is now at this moment is teaching English to refugee 
children. And that's refugees from the east of Ukraine? From everywhere. You can see here the cars with number plates of every region, including Donetsk and Lugansk. These people are two times refugees because first they left Donetsk or Lugansk regions and settled somewhere in the central Ukraine, and then they had to, to go again to the west. And have you made a decision then that you will stay, you and your family will stay in Ukraine? Yeah, we, we, we are staying. I can travel a bit. I did go to London recently and uh, to Vienna for fundraising events to collect money for refugees. And probably I will do this again. But we are based in Ukraine and uh, I don't want to leave the country. I wanted to switch a bit and ask about President Zelensky and what the view in Ukraine is of him and his leadership over the past few weeks. Have you found yourself surprised at the role he's taken on? I, I was surprised, yes. I'm very happy he is doing this job now because I'm not his fan and I never would vote for him. And I, I was very happy about many of his decisions. But I mean, now he is the right guy for, for Ukraine and he is doing a good job. So the government, the parliament is working. Uh, the president is there. So, I mean, there is some kind of stability factor which uh, calms down a bit those Ukrainians who are panicking because really the country is resisting much stronger than it could be expected. And president is actually doing his job 24 hours a day. And do you think his actions have contributed to that stability? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that he is present, that he is uh, giving speeches to different parliaments via Zoom or via internet, and the texts are great. The speeches are very well written. I don't know who is the speechwriter, but this person should be awarded a prize, a literary prize, maybe Nobel Prize. Yeah, obviously, you're a writer, you're an artist. His what Zelensky does and what speechwriting does is very different, but there there is the idea of crafting a narrative and telling a story involved. Yeah. Has there been anything that you've, in that, looking at that sense, you've been quite appreciative of what Zelensky is doing and how he's tailoring his message to the world? I mean, he, uh, I haven't read or haven't listened to all of his speeches, but the extracts that I heard, they are quite powerful and obviously they can influence. This is the situation where words and correctly chosen words matter and they can change, actually. They can save lives, they can change the date of the ending of the war. We are sort of back in Churchill's era now, where actually some of the speeches really can influence millions and millions of people. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman, in digital, in print, or both, from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok. And over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You've been writing throughout the course of the war. You've been filing dispatches and, and really capturing some really beautiful and heart-wrenching details about what you've seen and what you've experienced. So I wanted to ask you about the role of artists and writers in, in war and what they can offer and what, what they should offer. And do you think art becomes, do you think art becomes more or less important in a time of crisis? I don't think people in Mariupol now are concerned with art during the war. The, the writers are doing their job. It does, doesn't mean that they are writing fiction. No, nobody can write fiction now. But I mean, they are informing the international audiences. They are writing columns and texts also for Ukrainian media. They're covering these stories just like journalists. And the artists, some of them are trying also to do graphic work that can convey a message to outside world. But I, I don't think actually that the art has a huge role now. The army has a role. Politicians ha has a role. I'm the president of Pan Ukraine. So we are running online discussions, dialogues about war in English for the international audience. We are checking on every member of Pan Center to where this person is, if we can help. We are collecting money to, to help those who managed to escape to Poland, but find themselves there without a boat, without place to live, without money. We have members who are now in hiding on occupied territories. So we're keeping in touch and actually every day we are exchanging messages. And recently we didn't hear from one of our members for five days and we were very worried, but in the end, actually we got a message again and they just, the Russians are trying to uh, switch off internet, switch off telephone net uh, services. In this sense, the solidarity of artists is very important, uh, which which means that actually the artists can help each other and survive and uh, be of use in the future when the war is over. 
there are already two artists, two painters killed. This is a no known figure because they were in territorial defense and they were just shot dead by Russian soldiers. We have writers who are also in the army. They are fighting the East and some others. So we, we have victims of shelling among artists and uh, among writers and professors and teachers, etc. And the best and probably the only Ukrainian translator from ancient Greek was shot dead by Russian soldiers near his house in Bucha, near Kiev. Alexander Kislyuk, who, who translated Aristoteles and Tacit and many other ancient philosophers in, in Ukrainian. And so Ukrainian art will uh, have difficult times to find replacements for many of the uh, artists who are killed or will be killed or will disappear. So otherwise, of course, there is no film production. In fact, the Grey Beast film production was stopped several days before the war because the film team was filming uh, 10 kilometers away from Russian border in an actual practically abandoned village when they were told by Ru Ukrainian army to evacuate as quick as possible. I mean, there is a pause in everything, uh, but it will also, I think the war will create also a, a new tendency in Ukrainian art. And after 2013-14, Ukrainian literature became already much more militant than it was before. Uh, so I cannot imagine it can become even more militant now, but probably the other arts, I mean, will become paintings and drama and films. Well, I wanted to ask a bit about your own dispatches and what you've been writing and how you decide and assess what you want to convey in your pieces and how you choose which which details to focus on. This is partly, I guess, a question about your actual writing process, but it's also a question about shaping a narrative in a time of just overwhelming devastation. Well, I mean, the, the, the war is destroying uh, all spheres of life. It's physical life, it's buildings, architecture, history, culture. And in the last two days, I had been writing a series of texts about culture as victim of the war. Uh, but also I wrote a text about Mariupol and about the, the fact that actually now after this war, the Second World War in the Soviet Union will mean nothing to Ukrainians. Because what is happening in Mariupol is something that was happening in Stalingrad. But you will relay, and people will relate to the more recent events. And the events like this in 21st century are unthinkable. I mean, you know about barbarity, barbarity of 20th century, of Second World War, yes, but that we were saying they, these were German fascists, Nazis. And now, actually, the country which uh, was fighting the Nazis became Nazis for Ukrainians uh, and killed, uh, bombing maternity clinics and theaters where people are hiding. It's not something, actually, you can forget and, and you can just put it, push aside. I wanted to ask you about Ukrainian national identity and how, how this situation is shaping it. And you've just touched upon it there. I know there was a lot of reporting in the lead up to the war about how Ukrainians felt about Russians and how it was already dramatically different then from what it had been pre-2014 and lots of Ukrainians were, didn't think favorably anymore of Russia. And I just wonder how you think this war, once, once it has ended, what Ukrainian national identity will be and what it will become. Well, I mean, uh... 
national identity is there already. And the more Russia was pressing on Ukraine, forcing Ukraine to be dependent, to join Russian Federation or to join so-called the CIS community of ex-Soviet republics, the more anti-Russian and the more independentist Ukrainians were becoming. And so, I mean, the, the identity is there because it is connected not only with the language. Ukraine is a multicultural uh, country. And the, actually, the majority of those civilians who are killed in Mariupol and in the South and East, they are Russian speakers and ethnic Russians like me. I mean, identity will be also based on the fact that it will be opposite identity to Russian identity. We will have the same relationship as between the Soviet Union and Germany after the war. There will be millions of people who will prefer to forget Russian language and to forget everything Russian and will teach their children to do the same. I can see that if Europe fulfills its promise and will accept Ukraine as a member of EU, Ukrainians will be very quickly identify themselves with Europeans, but at the same time, they will be re retaining the identity, the traditions, the mentality, the cuisine, the songs, etc. You mentioned the European response, and I wanted to ask you about the view from Ukraine and how it sees the global response and the Western response to this conflict. European Union was very naive and at the same time, I think partially hypocritical and pragmatic uh, regarding danger coming from Russia. They preferred not to see that. And Angela Merkel, when she decided to build this gas pipeline, obviously just treated Putin as some kind of nice pet who will not do evil things. Uh, and now Germany already talking about another gas pipeline from Norway, from Stavanger, which should have been actually the only one built in this situation. But of course, the Ukrainians are quite angry with Germany because Germany is until today reluctant to help Ukraine and reluctant to stop trading uh, with Russia. Other countries, some of them are more supportive of Ukraine, some are less supportive because, of course, Ukraine remains unknown European country for Italians, for many French people, for, for others. Anyway, the ordinary people who are helping Ukrainian refugees, they do show that they understand what is this war about and they show their best qualities. Ukrainians are very grateful to the UK, to the United States, to Japan to Lithuania, to Poland for military help and humanitarian help. But, I mean, I don't see a unified European response to the crisis. And in some cases, one can be appalled, by, for example, by the decision of Israel now to cancel visa-free travel for Ukrainians, but to keep visa-free tra free travel for Russian citizens. So it's impossible to say that all the world is behind Ukraine in this war. What... More specifically, would you and other Ukrainians like to see Europe do in particular? I mean, to save Ukrainian cities from bombardments and shellings. If nobody wants to guarantee safe heaven over Ukraine, then there should be more anti-air weapons sent, defensive weapons sent to Ukraine. Because we are dealing with the armor, which is many times bigger than Ukrainian. Uh, and they lost a lot of their cannons and planes, etc. But Russia has lots of other stocks of weapons and uh, tanks and everything else. And finally, I wanted to ask you, how do you see, and obviously it is impossible to predict, but how do you envision the 
that this war will end? What does it feel like from within Ukraine? No, there is a feeling that this war will last as long as Putin is alive because he doesn't want to stop. He doesn't want to give up. For him, actually, to let Ukraine go uh, means to lose the face because he had obviously for a long time plans to incorporate Ukraine into his empire. And it, it's not happening. It's happening now that he stopped sending more troops to attack uh, Kiev. So he will concentrate, obviously, on the eastern and southern regions and will try to cut uh, Ukraine all from the sea. From Azov Sea, Ukraine is already separated by the occupied territories, but the Black Sea is still accessible for Ukraine. So today's shellings in Odessa, this was the first time actually the city was hit, show that there will be more efforts now to to destroy Ukrainian defenses in the south of Ukraine and maybe to try to expand from there. How do people think President Zelensky should approach peace negotiations and a peace deal. No, no compromise is expected. And actually, e- even if Ukrainian participants of the talks uh, will agree to one or two points that in the demands of Putin, it won't be taken f- for granted and quietly by Ukrainians, especially after cities and towns are destroyed and so many deaths occurred. I think that's all the time we have for today. Andrei Kukov, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Please join us on Wednesday for another episode where our team will discuss the latest developments of Russia's war in Ukraine. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and tell your friends. My producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening, and until next time. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.